Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and today's episode is a little bit different in that we're going to talk about a critical aspect of the environment by which biotechnology and biomedical researchers operate. We're speaking with Dr. Chris McDonald. Uh, he's a professor in the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University in Toronto and director of the Jim Pattison Ethical Leader Education and Research Program. Um, welcome to the podcast, Dr. McDonald. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. And, and the reason I really wanted to have you on is because of your uh, writing in this area of conflict of interest, but it really isn't just that. You've been trained as a philosopher. Um, you're teaching at one of the biggest schools, business schools in Canada. Um, you're teaching ethics and critical thinking on a regular basis and writing books along those lines, and uh, also writing a lot of peer-reviewed literature about business ethics and uh, conflict of interest, and including some stuff on uh, GMO labeling. So you're a perfect fit for the podcast. So lately, I've had some uh, dealings on the fringes of conflict of interest and you know, maybe cross the line, maybe don't, but really looking at what are in some gray areas and I really think that we need to be thinking harder about how we're training scientists to operate in this space, just so that it's completely transparent and clear and looks good. Um, so let's start out by talking about conflicts of interest and what exactly is a conflict of interest in the parlance of university research? Okay, so a conflict of interest is just a particular kind of situation. And it's a situation in which someone is usually playing a professional role in which they are expected or entrusted to either make a decision or to exercise judgment uh, on behalf of someone else. And within that situation, they have some external interest, often a financial interest, but not always a financial interest, uh, that might tend to skew their judgment in one direction or another. And when it comes to university researchers, the relevant judgment usually has to do with how we carry out and how we present our research. It's really easy to fall into that because someone has to fund the research. And nowadays we're seeing more and more corporate support of biomedical research and even biotechnology research to some degree. And it, it seems like more and more people are raising those allegations of conflict of interest. So is it a really a healthy environment that we see more attention being placed on examination of these potential relationships? Well, I think, you know, as a, you know, as, as someone who focuses on ethics, I'm, I'm in general kind of happy with increased, you know, public awareness and, and, and for people to have a better understanding. Uh, and, and, you know, people that work for powerful institutions, I think it's, you know, fair enough that people want to keep an eye on things. But, um, so I think there, I kind of welcome the general heightened public awareness, but, you know, the, the internet, um, is is just a, a tool, and it can be used either uh, well or it can be used badly. 
And I think I've seen a lot of examples of that. I, I mean, we, we see, I think it's appropriate when a company finances research and the research comes out favorable towards that company's um, uh, position or, you know, helps that company's product that, you know, that, that, that people should think about that and, and consider it and uh, maybe consider the ethics of that laboratory and the people involved, uh, the collaborators involved, maybe look under the, look under the hood a little bit and, and make sure everything is in line. And, and we have all these transparency laws that help us do that. But how how far is that fringe? So in other words, if a company ABC funds research on, I don't know, improving uh, corn, and uh, the same research laboratory is um, also funded by uh, USDA to uh, study, uh, I don't know, algae, you know, how much should people be skeptical of the algae research because that same laboratory has a separate project studying something completely different? reasonable amount of judgment needs to be needs to be exercised i mean the i mean in 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 part you know the i mean conflict of interest rules and disclosures and so on are are just one way of ensuring the integrity of research i mean there's a whole other um you know the fact that we have peer review the fact that we you know that scientists never believe the first uh the first hundred studies on any given topic there's the you know the power of replication so we kind of have these these other mechanisms that say look even if you're slightly worried that this person had a different project funded by uh, someone you don't like, look, it kind of all hopefully comes out in the wash as long as you have enough diversity of researchers and diversity of, of, of funding sources. So it seems almost like the default um, position nowadays is to equate conflict of interest with misconduct. Yeah, that's a huge, that's absolutely true. And it's a huge problem. Um, not just in academia and not just in science, but in, in, in politics and in other uh, aspects of life in the world of business, conflict of interest just, you know, just isn't in itself um, uh, a form of misconduct. Uh, if it's handled badly, if it's handled, if it's a, an extreme conflict and handled very badly, that could end up being a kind of misconduct. But I think a lot of people are misled by the, just the fact that the word conflict is in there and they have a sense that the word conflict means something bad. Uh, and they also understand, of course, that conflict of interest is a challenge um, and that's legitimate. But I think there's, there's sort of a slide into thinking that um, because it's a challenge, it's automatically um, um, something bad um, on the face of it. Yeah, I agree. And that, you know, the language maybe needs a little revision. Like if we called it like other stuff to consider or, you know, like tangents to think about, I, there, it seems almost like there can be a more honest way to uh, talk about disclosure that, uh, that, you know, here's some other things in our funding that, you know, we want you to be aware of. And I think that that's, you know, that would it maybe would help the whole process along with some better policy because, if you look at policies from around universities, how good are they in terms of helping researchers shape the way they disclose their uh, conflicts? Um, conflict of interest policies at universities in general, I think, you know, you want to be careful generalizing, of course, but are, are not very good. Most universities, I would wager, don't have very good conflict of interest policies. And I, and I have some direct insight into this because a number of years ago, a colleague and I actually did a, a study where we looked at conflict of interest policies at um, a dozen or so major research universities in Canada. And we, we just did a really simple kind of um, 
content analysis where we said, look, um, uh, for each of these policies, does it do really basic things like offer a definition of conflict of interest? Does it provide an example? Does it uh, offer guidelines about what you should do if you find yourself in a conflict of interest? Does it, does it tell you who within your university to go to if you need to learn more about conflict of interest? And by and large, um, these conflict of interest policies at these major, major research universities just got failing grades. They were just, in general, missing one or another of those really essential ingredients. And most of them, you know, read like they were, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are lawyers, as the saying goes, but these were written like they were done by lawyers on amphetamines. They were just not readable by by real human beings, and so they didn't offer good guidance. Well, I know that even here where I am at University of Florida, that the guidance to us is kind of thin. And early on, it was always pretty clear that, you know, you you work in an ethical manner, which if you get to this point in your career, it's because you have done an ethical job with research. Um, you you uh, make sure that you're disclosing who the financers were for that project and the work that's in that publication and uh, the people who did the work and maybe collaborators and others that you should acknowledge. And if that's what you, if that's the scope of that project and the people involved and the funding that covered it, that was proper disclosure. But it seems now that people want to know who bought you the coffee at the conference. And and where does it start to go a little too far? Yeah, I think, you know, once you get to the point where it's, you know, I once met someone from that company kind of thing. I mean, that, I, I think any any reasonable administrator or uh, journal editor is going to say, no, that's that's just not what, what the... What, what we're looking for, you know, simply knowing someone is never going to be above the threshold for declaring conflict of interest. But, you know, as you and I both have, uh, have seen, uh, that's not to say that you won't face criticism. People don't need a good reason to open their mouth if they've already decided what they don't like, uh, whether they don't like you or they don't like your company or the company involved. I mean, I had personally, I had someone recently online uh, uh, sort of ask uh, whether I or implied that I might be in the pocket of a particular industry because some of my colleagues, and she didn't say who, had been profiled in certain industry magazines, and she didn't say where or why that matters. So, you know, the internet is, or at least can be, a, a wonderful tool for accountability, but like any tool, it can be used well or it can be used badly, and unfortunately, we've both seen it used badly. And there's another confounding variable too that I've seen that I've talked to people about quite a bit. And it's the idea that industry funded research tends to, um, at least in the perception, match the desires of the industry. So in other words, you know, an industry makes insect killer or insect repellent, and they pay the researcher to do the study that shows that, that, you know, to do the test and the researcher publishes, yeah, it repels insects. Now, right away, people go, well, of course, you know, that looks like impropriety because that's what the company makes the insect insecticide. They finance the research. But what they don't realize is that if the researcher does the experiment and it doesn't repel insects, then it's never published. <laughs> that's one part. And that a company who makes ins- insect repellent is not going to go look for independent confirmation that it doesn't work. You know, they're they're going to go say, okay, we have this stuff that looks like it works. Let's fund some independent research of a trustworthy and ethical laboratory, and let's see what they get. And right. how much does that play into this too? Well, I think you know, for one for one thing, the public 
I mean, you know, I, I got to say as, as background, you know, there is still in principle a legitimate worry and, and, you know, and, um, it's not like impropriety never happens. Right. So that's, that's clear. But I think in general, the public doesn't understand very well either how science is carried out or how, uh, or how it's funded or what it is that motivates professors, uh, and research scientists. So, you know, I think there's, you know, and in part, you know, I tend to say, well, that I guess that's kind of our job to help educate them, though it's a, it's a pretty difficult thing. No, I agree. It's, it's, it's multiple levels of the problem. Um, we have so many good transparency laws in place and so many ways to get to the bottom of questions. If there was an ethical lapse, I know universities take such um, allegations very seriously. Um, but nonetheless, it still seems like something that we, it, it's such a gray area and such a foggy area. And that's why I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'd kind of like to almost pick up the mantle on this and run with it a touch and try to shape policy here and see if, you know, we can get, get a little traction because even uh, places that we trust, like I, I have um, on line in front of me here um, from nature journals, conflict of interest policy. And I'll just read a little part of it that in the interest of transparency and to help readers form their own judgments on bias, uh, nature journals require authors to declare any competing financial or non-financial interests in relation to the work described. And so the non-financial interests that they've discussed in nature is uh, having a friend at one of the companies. And I, it seems that it really starts to go too far at some point. I, and that's nature. You know, this is like a major journal. How do we do this in a smart way? So the, the nature actually says that knowing someone at one of the companies is enough or is that... Do they so Nature Journals talks about non-financial competing interests, and they say unpaid membership in government or non-governmental organizations, writing or consulting for an education company, uh, unpaid advisory position in a commercial organization. It says, uh, da, 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 yeah, it, it doesn't go that deep into, uh, yeah, it, all right, so that was something I must have read someplace else. But it it looks like there are so many... Uh, um, rather loose ways in which you can actually be a conflict, but still are legitimate conflicts. Yeah. The, 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 I think the challenge is when you, you know, to, to put yourself sort of sympathetically in the, in the role of the policy writer is that it's just, it's just really hard to anticipate what kinds of things are going to, or at least risk influencing a researcher. Um, you know, everyone, um, Everyone believes that everyone else is motivated by money, so it's easy to point the finger when there's money involved. Um, but we all know that loyalty is built up in a whole range of ways, right? Did you go to the same school I went to? Are you, do you go to the same church I go to? Um, did you did you lend me five bucks when I needed five bucks, even though I gave you the five bucks back kind of thing? Um, so there's there really just are all kinds of ways in which human loyalties can be um, uh, can be influenced and so I think policymakers are trying to say, you know, okay, what are the major ones that we have to think about? Um, the problem is that if you, you know, once you start thinking about six degrees of separation, then uh, it's, it's not too long before everything starts to look like a conflict. And that just doesn't make sense. And it makes, it makes science impractical. 
And I think that's where I've drawn a lot of criticism. I've, I've mentioned before to you, that I had a, uh, I had a technician who works in my laboratory that in 1989 published a paper and one of her co-authors was worked for the Monsanto company. And so people going through and saying, look, Fulta, you have a conflict of interest here. You've got a person who formerly published 30 years ago with a person who uh, used to work at the Monsanto company. And I just think there's such a stretch there, but for so many people in the internet space, it's about that six degrees of separation. And, and unfortunately it, it tends to sully public per- perception of what we do, which makes that matter of not knowing what we do even worse. Right. And I think, you know, I think in addition to sort of, you know, some of, some of the accusations becoming implausible, some, you know, at some point the standard just becomes in, impractical. Uh, and this is, you know, this, you know, your example is a, is a good one because, you know, imagine how many people know someone or work someone who once upon a time wrote a paper with someone at Monsanto. That's an awful big, you know, chunk of, of, of the field. Um, in a, a, another paper I wrote on conflict of interest a number of years ago, we were looking at conflict of interest in um, not-for-profits. And so we looked at um, this was about a non a nonprofit that gave out um, that gave out grants actually, and so we looked at who it is that evaluates the grants. And in a small enough field, you know, everyone applying for the grants knows everyone who was a potential reviewer of the grants, and they either love them, worked with them, or hate them. And so it starts to look very quickly like you literally can't find anyone qualified who doesn't have some form of conflict. And so you just have to do the best you can, and you find other mechanisms to say, look. We're not going to find people that, you know, couldn't through some lens, if you squint your eyes, have a conflict. What we're going to do is acknowledge that problem and we're going to try and find other mechanisms to deal with it. And so that's that's really the big problem, though, is, you know, some of these things really do fall into a gray area. And I know a couple of the landmines I've stepped on over the years have been things that when I look at them retrospectively, sure, things I could have done better. But was the conflict so egregious that it would cause tremendous reverberations with um, even, you know, potentially, you know, uh, career um, uh, effects um, because of them? And I, you know, maybe I can share with you a couple of the things and you can tell me your interpretations of how it could have been done differently. Um, I know that uh, through my whole career, my fundings come from NSF and USDA and uh, Florida strawberry growers, almost all of it. And uh, 2014. I had a donation to a science communication program I teach um, that came from the Monsanto company. And I thought this was great. I was so excited that they were willing to sponsor that, that program. And people would ask who sponsors your research. And I would say NSF USDA and the national Florida strawberry uh, growers, because that's true. And, uh, and then, you know, later on, you know, then whenever I did the science workshop, I would say brought to you by the Monsanto company. And I wouldn't talk about USDA, NSF or Florida strawberry growers. I was giving credit where credit was due. And is that enough? Or do we, uh, so I guess two questions would be, is it to our advantage to be crazy hyper over the top transparent and talk about everything? Or is it um, completely insufficient to omit somebody with a tangential financial commitment to a, to one's research and, uh, you know, teaching. Right. I mean, at, at some point the disclosures start to look kind of weird, right? Um, you know, imagine that you're, you're doing your introduction to the uh, science communication workshop and you say to everyone, okay. And by the way, I just want to point out that I am also funded by the Florida department of agriculture and consumer services. 
that would, you know, people would say, you, you know, they'd be looking at each other in the audience asking why you were telling them this, because it's just not, it's just not relevant. So, you know, this is one of those situations where, you know, almost, you know, certainly, you know, with, without um, presuming to know the details of, uh, of the actual policies you work under there uh, at the university, um, there's, there's, there's no way a rule, a rule was broken there. Um, but someone who has already decided, you know, a critic who has already decided that they don't like Monsanto and has already decided that scientists in general are, uh, are in the pocket of, um, of big business, you know, at that point, you know, they're applying their own rules and, and you're never going to get on the right side of those. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly it. And, you know, the other side of the coin is too, is that I don't want to necessarily give a company credit for my research if they had nothing to do with sponsoring it. And especially a company that we had asked to sponsor research or uh, grad students or something through the years. And they've always said, "Hey, we don't deal with anything in Florida. So, you know, we're not interested in your research, which is true. Nobody uh, in the big companies is much concerned about what we do in general and until very recently. I guess the other thing I think about that I've personally had to deal with it was a little more recent is in a is in a uh, kind of a funny gray area of confidentiality. And so I was retained as an expert um, in a subject matter expert in a case between two parties. So it wasn't even a legal thing. It was a private arbitration and two companies trying to slug it out and figure out who's right and who's wrong. And I was asked to look at some really old data and they retained me as a compensated expert to do this. And, um, the rule was, though, when I signed the agreement, that um, I couldn't talk about any aspects of it, who was involved, what was involved. I had to keep it confidential. So I did this as outside work. I filed the appropriate paperwork with my university and said, I'm working on the outside on this project uh, on my vacation time. And then later on, when uh, people used freedom of information or, you know, public records requests to obtain those documents, they broke my confidentiality and said, uh, look at who's not disclosing his associations. And, uh, you know, with these uh, entities that were having this arbitration. And how could I have avoided that better? I mean, how do you, how, or, or was that totally off basis? Or can you, I know I've asked 20 questions here. How can you be confidential and transparent at the same time. Yeah, I think in, in you know two things. One is that in terms of of policies and procedures, you know, the university has got to get its act together and to figure out you know how it wants to balance those two things because the university uh, has you know that has a, a direct public obligation here to sort of make sure that it can that it can balance those competing objectives. But I think in in terms of the substance of the accusation. That, that you failed to disclose a conflict of interest. I mean, I think the, the immediate question has to be, and just purely from an analytical point of view, is, okay, what, what decision do you think I was involved in making that might have been swayed by this? What's the, right? Because don't forget, it's part of the fundamental definition of conflict of interest is that I'm in a position to make a decision or to offer guidance or judgment and that guidance or judgment or decision might be swayed by this other relationship or interest. So, so to the critic, you want to say, okay, what was, what was the decision you're worried about? Was it when I hired someone from one of these companies? Was it, uh, what was it? Where, where was the thing? Because 
you don't want conflict of interest just to be a you know a form of, of foot stomping, right? So there are, there are certain words like that in the English language that you know, as soon as you drop that bomb, as soon as you say the word exploitation, that is supposed to be an argument ender, right? Everyone backs away and says, "Oh, it's exploitation," and, and you don't want conflict of interest to work that way. You want it to be um, the starting point for a conversation. So, I mean, and, and people need to realize that there's just nothing shameful there unless the non-disclosure, or I mean, unless the non-disclosure um, is is either in violation of a, of a policy or you can point to, ah, this is what the specific risk was. And it sounds like in this case, you know, they're not pointing one out. And that's basically it. I mean, the, the folks who made the allegations were folks who um, – I was working with on a project that should have been done three years ago and never was completed and had no progress towards being completed. And then I went and took this other gig and now they're, you know, saying I should have disclosed this to them. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was a, when, when I'm told to be confidential and this is an outside work, it really puts you in a funny position because if you do disclose the content or nature or participants in that discussion, it could imperil the decision of the, of the decision, right? I mean, I think the problem I'm up against now as a scientist, and I think other people in my shoes, is that now we get a uh, non-disclosure agreement from a small startup company that wants to work in some space and says, you know, can you help us with this, compensated or not? Um, I'm a little hesitant to take those on without first telling them I need to disclose on my website who you are and what you want. <laughs> and I have people who've said, um, no, we can't do business with you. And I think that's working counter to why we're here in science. Yeah. And that's an un- unfortunate consequence. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, what you've got here is kind of a, a complicated story of um, um, conflict of interest policy Um um, a transparency policy, a confidentiality policy, and then hovering above it all is Freedom of Information Act, right? And and each of these policies written by different people with different interests. So it's kind of a classic sad tale of um, um, not just the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, but the left hand not kind of not caring what the right hand is doing. <laughs> but I think, and I think you hit the nail on the head though. So the solution might be some sort of coordinated framework that really takes into consideration all these different facets. And even if that's university or, you know, some other kind of policy that can be um, amended at that level, I mean, you can't escape from Freedom of Information Act. I mean, that is what it is. And where I live, it's extremely broad and extremely transparent. So we have to really start there and say, with this kind of transparency, how do we manage uh, the perce- the uh, reporting of disclo- or disclosure? How do we manage disclosure? How do we manage the perception of conflict of interest? How do we deal with issues of outside work and confidentiality? And I think this is something, it's a great conversation to have. And is there any other really good solution from your perspective that if you could wave the magic wand and make it all go away or change in a positive way, what would you do? Yeah, not in terms of, you know, in terms of the, the, conflict of interest and transparency thing, uh, butting heads with, with, uh, privacy and non-disclosure. That's, that's just really a tough one. And I think, you know, I, I would have, I would have more optimism about, uh, reasonable people coming to a reasonable solution, reasonable solution. If it weren't for the kind of, you know, you, you, 
working in biotech, you're kind of at uh, ground zero for the for um, you know for for unreasonable discussions, if you know what I mean, in terms of mm -hmm. um, criticism and acrimonious debates online. And so, unfortunately, um, for all its uh, promise and 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 interest, um, biotech is just exactly the kind of area where people are are not likely to. Uh, uh, where people on different sides of an issue are not likely to come to a reasonable resolution. Yeah, which is really a shame because, you know, the funny part for me is I'm not really, I don't really work in biotechnology per se. I My uh, terminal degree is in molecular biology and genomics, and we do that stuff. But we're mostly solving problems for traditional breeding and, uh, and mostly in, you know, small fruits. And then we work with this light stuff. And, you know, we're, we're not really a biotech lab when you think about it, but it's a topic I understand well and love to teach. And because you just go out there and teach about biotechnology makes you immediately suspect for research that has nothing to do with biotechnology. And that's, you know, maybe you're framing, you know, the sad overlay of this. And maybe one solution that you know I've I've kicked around is could we spawn companies that are third party arbiters? So in other words, you have a company that would contact like the the uh, the large corporation that wants this research done contacts this third party who then doesn't tell the researcher who the company is or what the company is doing, but here's the experiment we need to run. Can you do it? And then re the researcher reports back those data to the third party. Would something like that be a potential remedy? Yeah, I, um, you know, maybe. And I can Im I can imagine ways that something like that would work. I think the worry you'd have to overcome is that what you're doing is obscuring the relationship rather than rather than cleaning it up, right? So the, I think the, the the critic would say, ah, they're hiding it behind, you know, what is effectively a shell company kind of thing. And I know that's not what you're suggesting, but I think so. I, but I, what I think you would need to do is have some way of uh, of ensuring that there was as much transparency as possible, um, and that the relationships remained uh, arm's length. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes you can you can also do things through, you know, having coalitions and involving government and so on. So it's not just a direct relationship. Uh, so that that's the part that I think is right is that you don't want it or, or it's one solution would be to to not have it a direct relationship between the individual and the the source of funding but you know the the other thing to say about that is that you know people focus on uh on industry funding um and, and they tend not to focus on how government funding public funding can skew research and you know i'll use myself as an example you know, I'm a, I'm a philosopher by training who a number of years ago developed an interest in the pharmaceutical interest, pharmaceutical um, industry because I was interested in the ethics of pricing. And then uh, in the early 2000s, the Canadian government announced a whole bunch of funding for issues in genetics and genomics. And so within a couple of years, I had shifted almost the entire focus of my research to uh, for, for a number of years to ethical issues related to the biotechnology industry. And I got, you know, a government grant and, you know, that's, a, that's exactly the kind of, of, you know, I'll, I'll openly admit that this is exactly the kind of shifting of research agendas that people worry about with regard to um, industry funding. Uh, and so it's, it's not like industry funding is the only source of bias. That's a really good point. I mean, look at uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, their dollars from a foundation, 
um, are working towards specific promotion of uh, particular world staple food crops. And so research money is going into those particular areas and not in the others. Right. So, yes, I mean, you know, funding does bias research because it changes what research you can do. But what it really get what we really have to do is change the conversation away from that into the questions of ethical breaches and malfeasance and and uh, or you know inappropriate use of funding, and maybe that's uh you know how how do we get that broader conversation out there so that this can be part of the discussion on research going forward? It's a, you know it's a great question. It's kind of in some ways it's it's the big question of not just science education, knowledge translation. Um, you know, I think we, we have to just keep trying. The, the internet is a, is a mixed blessing in this regard. I mean, never, never uh, have, have uh, researchers like you and me had the kind of uh, reach, the kind of access to the public that we have today, whether it's through um, blogging, which has been kind of my focus, or Twitter or, or podcasting like you're doing uh, and the other things you've done. Um, so we have this ability to carry on the conversation. It's just really, really hard to, uh, uh, uh to find people who want to have serious conversations rather than just, uh, flinging accusations. So Dr. Chris McDonald, if people wanted to read your blog or contact you on Twitter, where would they find you? Okay. Uh, a couple places, uh, on Twitter, I'm ethics blogger, just spelled just like it sounds E T H I S B L O G G E R. My blog, which I've written now for uh, about 12 years, is just called The Business Ethics Blog. It's at businessethicsblog.com. The other resource uh, your readers might be interested in, if they're interested in, um, in ethical issues, is uh, an online resource I wrote called the, uh, the Concise Encyclopedia of Business Ethics, and it's at conciseencyclopedia.com. Yeah. And the blog is highly recommended. It's really well written. And there's a lot of topics that, you know, it, it sounds kind of dry at first, you know, ethics blogger, but you know, you, you use real world examples that are really uh, uh, poignant and interesting and fun to read. So thank you for that. So well, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And then um, uh, we'll follow up with you someday, hopefully when we figure out how to do this and, uh, and maybe we can enact some better policies. And uh, I'm, eager to lead that discussion, at least here at my university. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, send us your suggestions. Tell a friend. Uh, the sharing of this science only grows with more people sharing the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to Talking Biotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.